At the end of the rainbow, what are we going to get here with the 2021 New York Mets? At the end of the rainbow, is it a pot of gold or a pot full of paper clips and thumbtacks and stuff? Wednesday night, it was looking more like a run through the aisles of Office Max. Razor thin margins, my friend. The Mets have now played 55 games decided by just one run, most in the major leagues. And Wednesday night in South Florida, all that razor sliced into the Mets' opportunity to catch and pass the teams they're chasing. 2-1 to one Miami, the final in 10. We will dive into it next. Mets in the morning. Mets in the morning. Oh, yeah. Mets in the morning. Gonna tell you what the Mets are doing while coffee is brewing now. Here's Josh Lewin. Oh, boy. A questionable decision from the Mets bench in the bottom of the 10th, pitching to the hottest Marlins hitter instead of walking him to face the coldest Marlins hitter, and it did cost the ball club. At least they didn't lose any ground. At least they didn't lose any ground because the Phillies lost and the Braves lost. Josh Lewin with you. We're going to drive this car all over the road for the next 22 minutes or so. The major news from Wednesday, hey, it's a classic managerial conundrum to go lefty-righty or hot guy versus cold guy. Brian De La Cruz had the game-winning double in the 10th, came off Edwin Diaz, who's now absorbed the last two Mets losses. This is after the Mets just had that stretch where they won 8 out of 9. Good things are happening. Pete Alonso, the eight-game hitting streak, nine extra base hits in that time. Since August 16th, he's got the second-best OPS in baseball. And led by Alonso, the scorecards have been looking a lot less blank of late, but even the polar bear couldn't move the needle Wednesday night. Remember in the uh, 13 games against the Giants and Dodgers, the Mets averaged three runs a game. Lately against Miami and Washington, it's been 6.1 runs a game into Wednesday. Only the Phillies have been better than that over the last two weeks. So the Mets went in buzzing like blue and orange bees on Wednesday night. But the Marlins, they were buzzing too because their part owner had just been inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame earlier in the day. And all Mets-Yankees hatred aside, All credit where it's due. Got to give it up for Jeter, and I will toss you two cool facts about his Hall of Fame career. Number one, his consistency. Played in 2,905 games, including the playoffs. Never failed to reach base in more than three straight. That's insane. Number two is the team he played on. I mean, the man played in four games ever when his team was eliminated from championship contention out of 2,900-plus games. And in one of those four games, he had a walk-off single in his last-ever home game. Career against the Mets killed him. 365 batting average, 955 OPS. The Rockies and Pirates, the only teams he was better against, and come on, he played 10 games apiece against those teams, played 88 against the Mets. The other Hall of Famers that went in against the Mets, Larry Walker was not nearly as good against New York. 286 batting average, 870 OPS was kind of lower tier for him. Ted Simmons against the Mets, really good. 315 batting average, OPS of 846. Only team he did better against was the Cubs. Hey, you want a fun one? I, I did a little rabbit hole swan dive here. Best OPS against one team by one batter. Barry Bonds against the Brewers. 57 games against him. OPS of 1346. Next on the list, I never would have guessed this, ever. Josh Donaldson against Minnesota. Of course, he would eventually play for Minnesota. But against them, 43 games started. 395 hitter. OPS of 1339. There are some other fun ones that come close on this list. Vlad Guerrero against the Phillies. Mickey Mantle against the Washington Senators. And it seems like Brian De La Cruz against the the Mets. 
Actually, the best all-time stats for a Marlin against the Mets. If I gave you five guesses, let's see if you can get this on five guesses. On batting average, on base percentage, and slugging percentage. Those are our terms. Best ever Marlin against the Mets. Is it A, John Carlos Stanton? B, Preston Wilson? C, Derek Lee? D, Jeff Conine? Or E, Marcel Ozuna? The answer, none of the above. Gabby Sanchez, most random Mets killer ever, unless it's Lee May of the Reds from back in the day. That's a good one. All those years of the big red machine against the Mets, all those years of Eric Davis and Paul O'Neill against the Mets, Lee May's career slugging percentage against the Mets was 600. Joe Morgan, about 370. Barry Larkin, 390. Pete Rose, 407. Johnny Bench, 437. Frank Robinson, 445. Lee May, 600. All right, enough with the rabbit holes. I'm sure you want to know what happened in the Wednesday night game in Miami. I've just been kind of dilly-dallying because I don't really want to tell you. Before the game, though, we learned that maybe Brandon Nimmo's hamstring thing isn't as bad as we'd all feared. Could be back in 7 or 10 days, which would be huge. They could have used him early on in this one because the Mets failed to score at all through six innings, getting just two hits off Sandy Alcantara. Miami, meantime, started the scoring back in the second off the veteran lefty Rich Hill. Isan Diaz had been 0 for his last 29 before his two-out single. Brian De La Cruz with the 10th best batting average in the majors since his big league debut six weeks ago. He got in on the action that inning as well, and Miami led it 1-0. Two things are true statistically about Hill. Average fastball velocity of just 88 miles an hour. That's fourth lowest in Major League Baseball. He's allowed an OPS of 833 against the bottom of the order this year. That's the highest in Major League Baseball. And sure enough, uh, the local as opposed to the express, that was catnip for those bottom of the order guys to grab that early lead. But all those tantalizing curveballs, the wisdom with which he pitches, let's just say, as Casey Stengel would have said, he done splendid. It was six innings of five-hit, one-run baseball, no walks, eight strikeouts. Hill kept him in it. And finally, in the seventh, Michael Conforto went and got a changeup from Alcantara, sent a laser of a home run out to right center. Twelfth of the year for Conforto, who continues to kill it in Miami. And Alcantara, by the way, through eight innings, it was three hits, one walk, 12 strikeouts. That guy's going to be a problem for the NL East for a really long time. Bottom of the eighth, the Mets call on the Louisiana lefty Aaron Loop. And that means he's now just two appearances away from a 50 grand performance bonus. And he has earned it. Because through 57 games coming in, 1.1 ERA, 12th best ever in the majors for anyone with that many appearances with a particular team. Mark Melanson has a record 0.8 to start his run as a Pirate. So you felt very good about Loop handling family business. He gave up a leadoff hit, but no big whoop. Foul out in a double play ball. On to the ninth. Mets being out hit 8-3 at this point. They were out hit the night before, 10-6, and they won by 5. Baseball is really weird, man. Top of the ninth, leadoff single from the late-season lightning bolt Jonathan VR, but Lindor pops out, and now it's Alonzo against Alcantara. The big righty on the mound at 110 pitches. Alonzo, second most late-inning RBIs in baseball since 2019. Usually clobbers a starter when facing him for a third or fourth time in a game, but strikes out on a nasty slider here. So another chance for Conforto whose last 30 games, by the way, have seen an OPS exactly on par with his career OPS. Michael Conforto is back to being Michael Conforto. VR steals second as it gets to a 2-2 two and two count, but Conforto strikes out. That's 14 for Alcantara, a career high. 
Kind of reminded you of the late Jose Fernandez, the way he was going at it. Bottom of the ninth, Marlins trying to walk it off for Alcantara, throw him the W. One-out double by Austin Jackson off Seth Lugo, a walk by Isan Diaz. Joe Panic goes up 3-0 on the count, swings at a borderline 3-0 and misses, takes a good pitch for strike two. Then Lugo misses outside, so his bases loaded one out for Miguel Rojas, who had hit into a double play the last time. Mets had gone eight and a third innings with no walks, then suddenly the back-to-backers from Lugo. So you're nervous here, big time. Winning run at third, a guy hitting 330 with runners in scoring position at the plate. Lugo gets ahead 0-2, strikes him out with a killer curve. Gets to Jazz Chisholm, and Lugo gets ahead of him 0-2. Chisholm socks one up the middle, but Lindor positioned perfectly, grabs a third hop, throws to first. Bonus baseball, and no win for Alcantara. The game would ultimately be decided in the bottom of the 10th. Edwin Diaz on the mound, goes runner, gets bunted to third. Jesus Sanchez just needs a sack fly to win it. He takes a called third strike. But now you've got that choice to make. De La Cruz, 336 hitter, got two hits and a line drive out in this game. Or you walk him, get to Lewin Diaz, four for 37 in the big leagues. He's on deck. They pitch to De La Cruz. And he rips the winning double off the center field wall. 2-1 Miami in 10, your final. After the game, Luis Rojas met the media. Hey, Luis. You know, with the way that uh, De La Cruz has been swinging the bat, was there any thought there to uh, to walking him with the base open? No, not, not initially. Uh, you know, we like we always like Diaz. You always trust your closer right there. Um, in, a, in a matchup, righty-righty. You know, Diaz stuff uh, always plays well. Uh, it's not a guy that gets hit hit around. The one thing that gets Diaz in trouble is his command. Uh, we've seen that. So, yeah, that's why we went with the matchup and we trusted Diaz to uh, to get the La Cruz in that situation. It looked like before the first pitch and, and before the second pitch, you were trying to get somebody's attention on the field. What was that about? Did that that had nothing to do with, with trying to walk him or anything there? No, it was it was BR. He's playing a little shallow there. And uh, in no situation, we thought that um, De La Cruz was going to, bond or anything. I mean, I think he was trying to keep uh, Chisholm close to the back because he's a guy that can be uh, aggressive if we try to bounce the slider there or something. Uh, but that was that was what we were trying to do there. I was trying to do is just to get BR uh, uh, to play a little deeper. And then what did Sandy do so well against you guys that, that kind of flustered your offense? Yeah, everything. He, uh, he was throwing strikes. Uh, a little different than his outing at home uh, last week when we saw him. He's throwing strikes with all his pitches, and he had a really good forcing fastball later in the game. Not only the sinker changeup slider mix that he can have, but the forcing at the top of the zone was uh, was tough for batters. He got a bunch of swings and misses, and um, that's why that's that's why he was able to cruise. And he was sinker baller earlier, and then he was the forcing guy later as he got a bunch of strikeouts with that pitch. So. Um, you know, just a guys that have a, a guy that has special st- uh, stuff. One of the best pitchers in the game, I think. And uh, he he was one of those nights where he was really really tough. All right, so there's the skipper. And as we check the old standings board with 22 games to go, the Mets are 70 up and 70 down. And really, what the Mets need most of all is eight more games or so between the two teams they're chasing. They need the Braves and Phillies to knock each other out, each going four and four, while the Mets are. Off on the side going 6-2. and But there are not eight games left between those teams. There are three. Last week of the season in Atlanta. For what it's worth, the Phillies lead that season series 9-7. Bryce Harper's hit only 228 with three RBIs. 
Freddie Freeman, meantime, has killed the Phillies. He's got seven home runs against him. But think of what that final week looks like from Atlanta's perspective. They'll likely be in first, and the two teams right behind him are lined up outside the door. First, the Phillies and the Mets, ready to enter the octagon. So if the Braves aren't up by at least four on both teams by then, that is going to be a really emotional week for them. Speaking of emotional, Let's get ahead of this coming weekend at center field. The 20-year anniversary of 9-11 is here. And, of course, the Mets didn't play on September 11th when all that happened. They were on the road at Pittsburgh. They eventually bust back to Queens, passing the still smoldering south edge of Manhattan on the way. They resumed play September 21st, quite memorably to say the least. And to mark those anniversaries, the Mets will be wearing first responder caps during BP and the game on September 11th against the Yankees. The two New York managers from that season will participate in the ceremonial first pitch. Bobby Valentine is going to throw out the first pitch to Joe Torre. And more than a dozen other former Mets coaches and players from the 0-1 team are expected to be there, including Mike Piazza. Of course, he's the one that hit the go-ahead home run on September 21st. More on that in a bit. And with big crowds expected for the Subway Series and the conclusion of the U.S. Open, the Mets are begging you to take mass transit. It's faster, it's easier. Fans should be in their seats, please, by 7 p.m. Saturday. That's when all the 9-11 pregame ceremonial activities will begin. I love the Valentine to Torrey first pitch idea. Joe Torrey, of course, managed the Mets for his spell, a very unsuccessful spell, then went on to manage the Yankees to a never-ending parade of World Series titles. Did you know, though, that Joe Torrey was almost a Met as a player for the championship run of 1969? Backstory on that, the Mets, Miracle Mets, right? Uh, they were they were known for a couple things, that whole era, say 68 through 76. Great pitching, poor hitting. And trying to get that offense kicked up a notch, they had a deal in place with the Braves for Joe Torrey, who was their starting catcher then. Steep Ransom, it's going to be Amos Otis and Nolan Ryan. And the Mets just couldn't pull the trigger. Of course, they were eventually okay with... Uh, a Nolan Ryan deal. Torrey was shipped to St. Louis at that point. His two best years followed, including an MVP season in 71. Here's another one for you real quick. The Mets, this is with Tom Seaver. At first, they accepted, but then rejected the Dodgers offer of Don Sutton and two prospects for Seaver, spring training of 76. And we all know what happened next. The protracted pissing contest for the next season and a half. The Mets would eventually ship Seaver off to Cincinnati for four very forgettable players. Mets could have had from L.A. Don Sutton, Rick Sutcliffe, and Pedro Guerrero. And who knows, maybe a Mets one-two punch of Sutton and Sutcliffe would have convinced management to hold on to the other prominent rotation members like Jerry Kuzman and John Matlack. Guerrero could have grown into the power-hitting star that that era's Mets really needed. Uh, Speaking of ex-Dodgers, let's get back to Mike Piazza who actually arrived via the Marlins. He had been uh, sloughed off to them for all of eight days. Piazza arrived Memorial Day weekend of 98. And his first season, 109 games, 23 homers, 76 runs batted in, that's fine. He hit in the 340s. And he signed a seven-year deal to keep going. He ended up with 220 home runs as a Met. And he started behind the plate for six All-Star games, repping the Mets, Of course, the battles with Clemens. I mean, so many things we could talk about. But regarding September of 2001, Piazza regularly visited Ground Zero and area hospitals. When he had arrived in Queens after those seven great years with the Dodgers, yes, he was already elite. 
But he had struggled in clutch situations his first few weeks. He got booed a lot. Mets fans were looking at him as a hired gun and thought he would bolt as soon as he hit free agency. But no, he he stayed. He signed the seven-year deal, got him to the World Series in 2000, the Civic Hero in 2001. And the pregame pageantry that night, that September 21st getting back at it game, I mean, gut-wrenching, brilliantly executed, 41,000-plus in attendance. Nobody really knew how to act in that game. Bobby V was the one that was kind of trying to egg people on, like, hey, it's okay to cheer. Mike Piazza was struggling so mightily to stay composed as all that was going on. But the cheers started to build, and Diana Ross followed with the gut-wrenching version of God Bless America. She started out at a mic uh, set up behind a home plate facing the crowd, and as the cameras zoomed in on Piazza, at first he was just chomping on his gum, trying not to cry, but he eventually broke down and eventually won the game. That was just after the seventh inning stretch, of course, when Liza Minnelli belted out the New York, New York rendition, and the crowd was just going crazy. And some context here, remember the Mets had just won nine of ten games before September 21st, and they were breathing down the Braves' necks for first place. So there was a lot of gravity uh, of the situation that night just in terms of baseball, let alone everything else with uh, 9-11. Mets versus Braves, this was Bruce Chen against Jason Marquis, and it smelled like a slugfest because the Mets had hammered Marquis all four times they'd seen him that year, and the Braves had done the same thing against Bruce Chen. But on that night, both pitchers were great. The game was 1-1 heading into the bottom of the seventh. Braves went to their bullpen, and it was Steve Reed and Mike Remlinger that got the 1-2-3 inning against the 7-8-9 hitters in the Mets lineup. Then uh, a Brian Jordan line drive off Armando Benitez in the top of the eighth scored a guy named Corey Aldridge to make it 2-1 Atlanta. Piazza do up in the next inning. And that's when it got good. One out, man on base, and like it was scripted, a towering home run into the night. Mets take the 3-2 lead that they would not relinquish. And in September and October of 01, Piazza was one of the best hitters in baseball. 352, 19 runs batted in in his last 88 at-bats of the regular season. But of course, the Mets faded down the stretch. They kind of limped to the finish line. Some of you remember it all but ended with the Brian Jordan Grand Slam in Atlanta on Fox Saturday Baseball down at Turner Field. And on the call of that game on Fox was me. And tomorrow on the podcast, some personal memories from that gut punch of a game and why that may have been my worst ever moment on national TV, among the many. That's a little tease for what we got tomorrow. So it's going to be Marcus Stroman tonight, 9-12, 2.93 against the lefty and former Oakland Athletic, Jesus Lazardo. The Mets are 16-28 against lefties this year. That's not great, Bob. Stroman is tied for the Major League lead in starts. He is 10th in the league in ERA. He's third in the National League in home run ratio. The Mets are 11-4 and four when Marcus gives them six innings this year. When he doesn't do that, they're 4-10. and 10. Game time is 640, and then it is back home to play the Yankees. We'll do a deep dive on that on the podcast tomorrow as well. Okie doke, that's what we have for you. And now, we'll bring the music up. We will meet the Mets in the Morning house band. That's a good way to cheer you up after the 2-1 to one extra inning loss. On keyboards... We say thank you very much, Anthony Young. In terms of who is slapping to base, we look to Anthony Recker. The horn section, Ron Gardenhire. And on the downbeat, those drums are being manned by Tim Foley. 
This is Josh Lewin. Appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you tell everybody that we're here every Monday through Friday. You can download and hopefully enjoy or at least pretend to. Have a good one. See ya.